Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Saddam, the Associate Vice Provost for Innovation and New Ventures and Managing Director of UNH Innovation at the University of New Hampshire. Mark joined UNH in 2010 and has an extensive background in intellectual asset management, licensing, and startup formation. In addition to his position with UNH, Mark founded the Peter T. Paul Entrepreneurship Center and serves as the executive director of the New Hampshire Innovation Research Center, New Hampshire's only translational research funding program. In addition, Mark is currently the principal investigator of UNH's National Science Foundation iCorp site. Mark served on the board of directors of the New Hampshire Innovation and Commercialization Center slash Alpha Loft from 2011 to 2016, and as vice chair of the board of Alpha Loft from 2014 to 2015. Since its inception in 2014, Mark has been a member of the New Hampshire Governor's Live Free and Start Advisory Council an initiative designed to help high-tech companies succeed in New Hampshire and also serves as an advisor to the boards of two nonprofits founded at UNH, Operation Hattrick and PLAN, which stands for Post-Landfill Action Network. Mark has been actively involved in Autumn. Currently, he serves as the chair of Autumn's board of directors and from 2015 and 16, served as its vice president for professional development the committee responsible for Autumn's education and training activities. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm ready to go. Awesome. Great to have you. And again, thanks so much for taking part in the podcast today. Can you share with us a little bit about your tech transfer journey in particular? What led you to the University of New Hampshire? Sure. So so I've been in tech transfer, in and around tech transfer, I'll say, for about 25 years. Um, and for those who've been in the profession as as long as I have, we our origin stories I always think are pretty interesting. It's a great cocktail conversation to have with people. So uh, I started in tech transfer because I moved from New Jersey to Chapel Hill to follow my uh, fiance now wife, and we didn't know anybody in Chapel Hill. The only person anyone in our families knew was the director of UNC Chapel Hill's tech transfer office. And so I went to uh, talk to him. His name is Fran Meyer. And just to see what was going on in the community down there. And he asked if I was interested in a part-time job doing filing. So I joined UNC Chapel Hill's tech transfer office as an intern, effectively, as a a part-time filing person, uh, working through the database and making sure all the data was updated. And uh, after about a year of doing that, Fran asked if I wanted a full-time job. And I definitely did. And, and that's how I started. So I spent eight years at, at UNC, left as the Associate Director of Life Sciences. And in the year that I left, UNC was uh, 
or I'm sorry, a few years before I left, UNC was the top startup university in the country. I think that was 2001. And uh, I was in charge of most of the life sciences practice. And I left UNC to go work for a startup. So we spun out a technology. And as everyone in tech transfer knows, you have your babies, the technologies that you really just for some reason gravitate towards. And those ideas became a startup company. We spun the company out. And about three months after it spun out, the CEO called me and said, Hey, we're, we're actually an IP company, but none of us here are really great at IP. Would you like to join us and help commercialize the IP? So I left the university and went to that startup, which was called Qualist. So I worked at Qualist starting in 2004, and I took the company over in 2007. So I was the chief operating officer of Qualist from 2007 to 2010. And at the end of that, you know, the company had been around for about eight years. Uh, we were not we were getting traction, but we just could not get over the hump. So I decided to look for other opportunities. And just around the time I was looking for something else to do, I saw the role at UNH opened up. Um, and I am an alum. I'm a graduate of UNH. I graduated in 1993 with a biochem degree. And so I saw the position open and I applied and here I am. And I've been here since late 2010. So about nine and a half years, the longest I've ever been employed anywhere. It's been really fun. <laughs> Wow, that's a great story. Having just, you know, it sounds like your career path, you never intended to go into tech transfer, it kind of just fell fell into it, which is which is interesting. Yeah, I, when I got in, I didn't actually even know what tech transfer was. And this was the the mid 90s. So it was only 15 years after Baidol. So not many people knew what tech transfer yeah, exactly. was. Exactly. So in fact, when I went to get a reference from my boss, uh, from the job I left before I got into tech transfer, he asked me what the job was for, and I said, "I don't know. It has something to do with patents." And uh, he and he called Dr. Meyer, and he called me back, and he said, "Why didn't you just tell me you were interviewing at the tech transfer office?" And my response was, "What's the tech transfer office?" Oh, that's and hilarious! Said, where you're about to work. So, <laughs> so that's, that's how too, I started. That's too funny. So now that you're up at the University of New Hampshire, can you tell us a little bit about UNH Innovations? It seems pretty impressive based on the research that I did. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting pieces of my career is it kind of bounced back and forth between industry and university. So my first job was as a, was as a researcher. Uh, I was a food scientist, actually. And I used enzymes. And, and I actually got a patent while I was at that company. It was the first time I was ever really exposed to IP. So I had seen IP develop in, in a industrial setting. Then I moved over to UNC. And I saw how IP was developed in a university setting, including really the early stages of the startup boom from universities. And then I went and ran an operating company in IP. So, so when I got back to UNH, I, I even talked to my boss in the interview and I said, I have a bunch of theories that I want to put together. And since this office is emerging, the one question I asked her before she hired me is, will you let me play? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, yeah. I want to I want to play around with the traditional tech transfer office. I'll, you know, I'll probably break a few things along the way, but I promise I'll fix it. And and I think there's a different way to do it. And so UNH Innovation came out based on the my view, uh, which is now shared a little more widely, that the patent licensing was really only one thing. So most of tech transfer focuses or has focused in the past on patent licensing. 
but that I thought there was more that a tech transfer office could do. And so we started by just making sure the tech transfer function was good and operational. We got that done pretty quickly. But then I was asked what, what else the university needed to support. And I, and I looked around and saw uh, a pretty, uh, pretty new ecosystem in terms of entrepreneurship. And so I said, you know, what would be great is let's found an entrepreneurship center. And I, I said that in front of one of our uh, most prolific donors, and he kind of stood up and said, I will fund that. Wow. <laughs> so we said, great. That's impressive. So we, yeah, so we founded the Entrepreneurship Center. He's very generous. It allowed me to bring Ian Grant on, who runs our Entrepreneurship Center now. Ian has done an amazing job. So he's uh, the, the, who, what the Entrepreneurship Center is now is a lot of Ian's vision. Um, but it started with me opening up the door and saying, this is a real need. And so once the Entrepreneurship Center started to really move, the university said again, well, what else do you think we need? And, and I said, well, our industry relationships aren't that great. And we tried to, you try, universities are big distributed beasts. And so it's sometimes hard to know for a company to know how they get in. So we had worked on this and worked on this. And, and I said, let me take, let me try to take over the industry engagement piece. And so we all opened the Office of Corporate Engagement. And then that's been really helpful. And I know we'll get to that in a little while of giving that front door to industry so that our industry engagement and our IP people are talking to each other at the same time. And then the last piece, which was here well before I got here, was the Interoperability Lab, which has been around for 30 years. And it is the world's largest third-party data communications testing firm, um, which is kind of amazing that that exists in a university and that that exists at UNH. But they have 180 industry partners around wow. the world and they test basically all of the data sharing protocols for every device that you ever know. <laughs> so wow. anytime you That's have a piece of electronics that talks to another piece of electronics, that protocol is tested here at UNH. That's incredible. Um, it is. And it's really, it's really impressive. And we have blue chip companies coming in and out. And, but the reason that it was, it, I was asked to, to take on the responsibility of, of shepherding the IOL is that they didn't commercialize anything. <laughs> and so my, the bot, my uh, supervisor who hired me said, I just feel like they, sh they should be commercializing things if they're working with 180 companies. And, and I said, I agree. And so over time, we worked with them to figure out how the Interoperability Lab could look to commercially uh, deliver solutions to their partners. And, uh, and since then, they have gone from zero licensing revenue to... This year, it might be upwards of $700,000 in revenue just for this year. And that, and that actually recurs on an annual basis. So it's great. Well, it's, what's interesting to me about your story about UNH Innovation is the fact that you came in and they were willing to be flexible in terms of allowing you to try out new programs and new things. And you expressed to them up front that you expected some of those things would work or you might break some things and then you'd fix them. You don't hear about that at a, a lot of universities. They're kind of set in their ways and there isn't that type of, I don't want to say free reign, but latitude maybe is a better word that's given to somebody like you to go out in and uh, kind of try all these different things out and, and see what works for the uh, tech transfer program at the university. Well, I, I, I guess you could, I could think that, or I could say that I'm lucky because the first few things worked. <laughs> so okay, it's always go. good. It's always good to get a win or two when you when you come out of the gate. So I think as as I was able to execute on things that they didn't have before, there was this growing sense of trust that 
if I could get a tech transfer office really renovated and highly performing in two or three years, then maybe there's more to it. So uh, the other advantage I think at UNH is that we've, you know, we, we're, a, we're a Carnegie R1 research institution. So we're in the top 5% of all research institutions in the US. And, but, and we've done between 120 and 140 million in research forever, but nobody really knew about us. So I looked at it as there was all this risk for the mill, but nobody had ever really paid attention to how you could, how you could do tech transfer. How could you get these ideas out into the marketplace more significantly? I mean, they did have an office and they did, a, they did a good job, but the scope of the, of the office was pretty small. And so, you know, again, I just told them, there's all these pieces, and if they all work together, maybe we do something a little bit better. And that, honestly, that's proven out to be true. And what what I've really enjoyed is seeing universities around the world actually look at that model and and try to start to organize themselves that way. I don't know that they all necessarily looked and saw that we were there first, right. but I think that that the structure of UNH Innovation to me is the natural structure of university innovation organizations going forward. So I think you'll find in 10 years, 70% of universities will be structured the way that we are. Got it. Can you, talking about structures, can you tell us a little bit about how your office is structured in terms of, you know, licensing folks, business analysts, people who handle startups? Um, It'd be interesting to see how you guys are structured compared to maybe some other university tech transfer offices. Yeah. So, so in some ways, we're, so the licensing function is is very traditional. We have a director of tech transfer, Jenna Matheny, who's awesome. Uh, we have two great licensing associates, and there's some administrative help for that. And that would look like a version of a tech transfer office pretty much anywhere in the world. the The rest of the pieces, though, are are what where the structure is kind of interesting. So the entrepreneurship center is in charge of predominantly undergraduate entrepreneurship. But they're being tasked increasingly with working with our iCore site and working with uh, grad students predominantly to try to get more startups coming out of the technology of the university. And I think we'll see we'll see more of that as we go along. The corporate engagement director with Christine as well, and his job is to look outward proactively at the industry and our ecosystem and see how we can help. But because he is a peer or colleague between the Entrepreneurship Center and the head of tech transfer, they talk on a collaborative basis. The IOL does sit a little bit off to the side, but as they've come up to the commercialization of their own intellectual property, they're working much more closely with, uh, with the licensing group and the startup group and the Entrepreneurship Center to, to get their ideas out. And, and actually, the IOL, because they're so focused on the commercial needs is able to give us advice on new ideas from the traditional tech transfer side. So if we have ideas from computer science or engineering, the IOL, because they're facing these industry partners that we need to go to, they can give us an insight on what's really needed in the market. So it, it in some ways, it's a little squishy. It does, all the pieces are working. They all have their individual roles and things to do but they're working collaboratively every day as well. So it's almost structured a little bit like a matrix environment where everybody is working with other people, but they have their core data and values and and ideas that they're trying to execute. So it's been really kind of fun. I, I can 
honestly say that I don't think everybody got where I was going when we started it. Yeah, I can imagine <laughs> it was last... a little bit different for people yeah. to kind of get yeah. their head around. Yeah. But in the, in the last couple of years, I think everybody figured out where I was trying to get us. And, and really, just even in the last 12 to 18 months, seeing things fire on all cylinders has been really wonderful. And we're doing some really interesting stuff. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, you've talked a little bit about the Peter T. Paul Entrepreneurship Center and the IOL. I know also you have the iCorps as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the iCorps and and what it does? Sure. iCorps is an NSF program. Well, it started at NSF. It's now at NIH and at a few different funding agencies. And it it was set up in, I think, 2014, nationally in 2014, under the concept that if we focused a little bit more on the, if we got faculty and researchers to focus a little more on the market, that we would be able to commercialize ideas faster. And so it's based on the principles of the lean startup and Steve Blank um, and Eric Reese are the, are the folks that really constructed the curriculum, so to speak. And so UN, UNH was in the third cohort of funded universities. So we got ours funded in late 2016. And so twice a year in the fall and spring, we run a six-week course with our faculty, uh, we do, we actually blend ours. So there's some faculty, but there's also some graduate and undergraduate students in every cohort. Uh, and that, that winds up being really interesting because it's very rare for a full-time tenured faculty member to be a peer with a sophomore. Yeah. <laughs> but, in, but in the class, they're both PIs on their ideas and they're equal. And, yeah, it makes um, some it is, interesting dynamics, I'm sure. It, it does. And it's kind of fun because you, you'd think it would be a big deal, but it's not. And I think that's what I really like about working at UNH is that there is this understanding that everybody's trying to learn together and the barriers of those, those silos that you think would be a lot taller really aren't as tall as you'd think they are, which is really kind of nice to see. And so we walk them through the six-week cohort twice a year, uh, usually have between 10 and 12 teams, so 10 and 12 ideas. Each team has a technical lead, an entrepreneurial lead, and a business mentor. And our job is to get them to ignore their idea for six weeks and really think about the problem that they're trying to solve. So we have them focused on the problem, not the solution. Uh, Because if you've done startups, and and I've done a few, um, people fall in love with their solutions. And that's how you lose a lot of money. Exactly. You need to fall in love with the problem. problem. Yeah. If you fall in love with the problem, you'll be passionate about the solution. And so that's what we do. And it's a, again, it's an NSF funded program. We are in our third year of it and it's really been helpful. And in fact, in many ways, i is the fulcrum of most of the work that we do because our tech transfer people are taking their promising new disclosures and they're bringing them through i Our corporate engagement person, Mark, uh, another Mark, is uh, often bringing companies in to help with mentoring. So he'll find people at companies he thinks are great. And then if they fit with a project, we'll ask them to mentor. The Entrepreneurship Center is bringing students in and also bringing mentors in. So it, it, that's the place where uh, all the units are really working together on a, on a really intense basis. And I think actually i has helped us coalesce as a unit, as a UNH innovation. 
It sounds like it. It sounds like you have a really, really nice little ecosystem going up up there with all these different kind of entities cooperating with one another. And it's really kind of one part is feeding another type of thing. We're trying. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's all you can do. But it it sounds like it's working really well for you guys there. Yes. Uh, Can we talk maybe about some numbers for your office in terms of maybe starting off with inventions and and some patents? Um, How many, would you say, just roughly inventions are disclosed to your office every year? It sounds like it's probably a fair amount given the amount of research that you're doing. Yeah, we we hit the expectations pretty much spot on for disclosure. So as a for the people listening, as a heuristic, um, any university should get a disclosure, a new invention disclosure for every $2 million in research funding, a patent application for every $5 million in research funding, and a license for every $10 million in research funding. Now, those are numbers that are based on the autumn surveys over 30 years, and they they hold really true, public, private, rural, urban. Um, For the most part, those those data, those, those heuristics apply as good things to shoot for. So for disclosures, we do about 100, last year we did about 125 million in research funding. So we should see somewhere, somewhere around 60 disclosures and we had 57. Um, so in an average year, we get between 45 and 60 disclosures a year. Um, and some of it just depends on whether our more prolific disclosures in agriculture are disclosing a lot in a particular year or, or that's one of their off years for breeding. Uh, in terms of patents, we actually don't file as many patents as your average university uh, for a couple reasons. One is our, our patent budget is relatively modest. But the second is that since we're, we have no med school, no school of pharmacy, and no vet school, we're dealing with predominantly computer science where mm-hmm. you have to be really a little more careful about filing patents because the field is so busy. Yes. Um, and, and software, of course, we don't really file patents on software. And uh, things like space science and really heavy engineering. And so the, the, the adoption period for those technologies is really pretty long. So, so we file, again, between uh, 10 and 15 patent applications a year, which if you look at the autumn numbers is a little on the light side. Um, but, but some of that is just a financial issue that we, that we have to deal with. Now, on the licensing front, we are one of the most prolific licensing organizations in the world, actually. So over the past five years, we have averaged well over 100 licenses a year. Um, so if you remember those numbers, if, I, if we're supposed to have a license for every 10 million in research funding, we should have 12 licenses. Yeah. But our, our peak year in licensing, we did 190 licenses. Wow, that's a lot of licensing. And, yeah. And, and so and that's because a lot of what we do is uh, we, we are probably the premier institution in the world at the commercialization of creative works. So we spend a lot of time with our copyrights and trademarks. So we work with faculty all across the universities. And, and if you think about the way tech transfer was created and what you might have heard about the field, you're always talking about pharmaceutical products or widgets, right? And so it's always an engineering or a life sciences or a treatment or a diagnostic or some kind of tool that that allows you to do something. But that's just effectively that's just the stem disciplines but we all sit in universities that have a tremendous amount of intellectual horsepower that is not in the stem disciplines and and unh has done a particularly good job 
of focusing on those disciplines. So we commercialize things out of our libraries, out of sociology, out of English, uh, history, psychology. So we work with these. Most of, most of them are copyrights. And we have a unique, a unique model, which we widely share. So if everyone who's listening is feel free to steal it. Is <laughs> we use, uh, we, we focus on the copyright, the copyrighted work. So let's say it's a, uh, a testing protocol for a psychological exam. We'll just use that. So, you know, you, you normally take the written test and you'd add it up and, and maybe the conclusions of those tests are, one, you get the conclusions on a very manual basis, so you have to look through all the paper to solve it. But you find out that, hey, people that respond to the, the protocol in a particular way are, are maybe susceptible to a particular behavioral outcome. And these assess, clinical assessments are really useful, but traditionally haven't been that valuable because they're so labor-intensive. And what we've been able to do is take those, those kinds of protocols, um, protect the copyright, we create a name for them, and we trademark the name, and then we license that bundle to companies. And then along with that bundle, we encourage the faculty to make themselves available to do consulting to implement the tool. And so effectively, it's a three-part licensing system. So we license copyright, we license trademark, and then we're helping the faculty get some consulting work to implement the tool. And, and that has been an incredibly successful model for us. And our, our most successful application of that is a program called Bringing the Bystander, which is the only evidence-based tool that reduces sexual assault and relationship violence. And so in our, in our top year, the peak year where we did 190 licenses, about 105 of those licenses were for this program. That's a really creative approach. I've never really heard of a university doing that type of approach before where you're actually taking a copyright and then getting a, you know, trademark on whatever it is, whether it's like you said, some type of clinical plan or um, questionnaire or scoring method, and then getting a trademark on that and then licensing the bundle. That's, there's probably a lot of universities who have similar types of creative works that that would apply to. It's very creative. Yeah. It's, I, it's another place where I think it's an emerging field and it's an emerging business model and a lot of universities are looking at what we're doing and trying to do the same thing, which is which is honestly what we should do. Nobody said tech transfer only had to be in the sciences, right? Exactly. So so the interesting part about that example that I gave you was I mean we do make, you know, we we do collect royalties on the commercialization of the tool, but they're pretty modest. And when people ask what's the output of that, you asked them at the beginning about numbers. Well, the last time I counted, we had we had trained something through the through the protocol. Our faculty had trained something like twelve thousand individuals on how to prevent sexual assault and relationship violence, and we estimated that those people trained probably an additional fifty thousand people. So, when you think about the numbers, you know our little corner of the licensing world may have had a, a positive impact on training up to 60,000 people on how to prevent sexual assault wow. and relationship violence. That's the number I care about. That's way more of an impact than whatever licensing revenue we get. And, I, and what I'd like to see is tech transfer. Think about those things as well. Yes, therapeutics, especially in, in the era of COVID-19, right? We all have to yeah. think about solutions. 
and I'm sure we'll get there. But there are many ways to make an impact, and it's not always financial. And if we can learn how to count some of those data points, I think the tool, the uh, the stories that we tell become much more powerful. Absolutely. And that's a great example of that an invention doesn't have to come out of STEM or, or something beneficial for society doesn't necessarily have to come out of STEM. Uh, like I said, very creative. So in that regard, uh, can you talk a little bit about corporate partners and the role they play at UNH Innovations? Yeah. So, so um, again, if we go back to the beginning of the conversation, our corporate engagement is really woven into everything that we do. So we have a pretty proactive role in engaging companies. You might not think of New Hampshire as a place that has a lot of industry, but we have a really unique tax structure. So we have over 450 aerospace and defense companies in the state. And that's a state with a population of just a little over 1.3 million people. So there is a lot of industry in the state. Um, And interestingly, the state hadn't always looked at UNH as a place to solve its problems. So we brought this role on. And Mark's role is really to go out and proactively ask the people in our ecosystem. And we, we, it's obviously New Hampshire, but it extends down to the greater Boston area too, to ask where they need help. And so our corporate engagement process is a little different. We don't go around saying, hey, our faculty have an idea. Can you fund it? We go out to companies and, and really it's a lot like ICOR and customer discovery. We go out to companies and say, how can you, ha- how can you help or where do you need help? And then we bring those ideas back to the university and get a group of folks that meet on a bi monthly basis. And we'll bring the leads. We'll bring the companies, uh, needs in and say, how can we help these people? So, so for, for the corporate engagement side, we actually have a matrix of 10 different verticals where that we've defined that industry can interact with the university. And that's everything from the traditional stuff of workforce and um, uh, philanthropy, internship programs, licensing, sponsored research, maybe sponsoring athletics. And there are a few other points there, um, vendors and purchasing. And we try to rank every company in our region about how many different ways they're engaging the university. And so our personal metric for that is what we're trying to do is build what we call authentic research relationships. And so what we're trying to do is create relationships with industry that have three or more of those verticals filled. So our whole process, if any of your listeners are familiar with the, the theater exercise of yes and <laughs> so yep, yep. so we'll go to a we'll go to a company and they'll say hey do you have we, we do you have an internship program we'd love to run an internship program we'd love to get talent and say yes and have you considered what sponsored research needs you have and have you considered unh to provide maybe some analytical expertise for you or are you would you like to do uh, we we try not to focus on philanthropy. We try to focus on the research side of the house. So we're we're always talking about analytical services or faculty consulting or anything that we can do that brings another relationship on. And and we pick three mainly because it's kind of like a table or a chair. You can have a three legged chair and it's probably pretty stable. When you only have two legs on the stool or the chair. It becomes a lot less stable. And if you only have one, well, you're going to be pretty good at balancing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, 
So, yeah, so we look at that as three seems to be when we get to three, it becomes an institutional relationship and not an individual relationship. And that's what we're trying to do. So our, our best example of that, and I won't name the company, is we uh, there's a regional company around us in the life sciences that had had an off and on relationship with the university. We hired Mark and we put these 10 vectors in place and we talked to, about how we could build this yes and kind of concept through. And over the course of three years, they went from hiring people when they had needs to they were actually in seven of the 10 verticals. And we're actually looking at, at, at uh, some naming rights for, for wow. some buildings that we had. So we went from nothing to them feeling like the university was a big part of their future. Uh, it was really, it was very satisfying to feel like we were helping them in that, in that way. Yeah, a total symbiotic type of relationship there. Yeah, it was great. And still is. That's awesome. Let's um, switch gears a little bit now and talk about Autumn, uh, an organization, as I mentioned at the outset, you've been heavily involved with, and you're currently the chair of the board of directors. And as I think most of our listeners know, due to the ongoing pandemic, Autumn National in beautiful San Diego was canceled this year, and you are not able to give your chair address in person, and you instead wrote it out, which was great, I thought, and and you posted it on Autumn's website and in your speech, you touched on what the future holds for Autumn and its members. And you spelled out and talked about three different topics. You talked about, first of all, Autumn's work with the Federal Laboratory Consortium for Technology Transfer, also known as the FLC. Two, you talked about equity, diversity, and inclusion. And then finally, three, you talked about the relevance of the tech transfer uh, beyond the traditional patent license. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about each one of these three points that you made in that speech in a little bit more detail. So maybe starting off with that that first point, um, for people who may not be familiar, can you explain what the FLC is why, and why Autumn applied for a federal grant and uh, why you think this partnership is going to be beneficial for Autumn and its membership? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I would, I would guess that most of Autumn's members weren't sure what the FLC was when we announced that that we were now operating the FLC on behalf of NIST. So you can think of the Federal Laboratory Consortium as Autumn's long-lost brother, or I'll say Autumn's long-lost sibling. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, most people in our profession know Baidol. I've already talked about it, I think. Um, Baidol was the law that allowed university to take title to federally funded inventions. What, what's less known, is that the federal labs, and there are over 300 federal labs in the United States, also had a law passed in 1979 that intended to do the same thing. The difference was on the university or public sector research side, Baidol applied. On the federal lab side, they created the Federal Laboratory Consortium, which is funded by a direct tax effectively on the total annual funding of the 12 to 15 major funding organizations in the federal government. So DOE, DOD, those kind of organizations. And so the FLC has been around as long as Autumn. And it, and it was funded directly and, and has had a staff that was paid to help to try to commercialize more out of the federal labs. And, and that relationship over the past 40 years has been a contractual relationship. So the federal government has... Uh, 
offered up the FLC in five-year grant cycles. And, and for 40 years, it was operating mostly unbeknownst to the academic tech transfer community. It was brought back up again. The grant opened in late 2019, mid to late 2019. Um, and it was sent to me both by Steve Sasalka, Autumn CEO, and UNH's uh, grants manager, who said, I think this is really fits Autumn. This seems like this is a really good idea. And so we looked at it. And the grant was asking for whoever, whoever was awarded the grant, what the grant was asking for were the things that we did. They wanted more education. They wanted help with commercializing IP. They wanted uh, templates and they wanted really great marketing and communications and they wanted to host great, host great convening events. And as we read through the solicitation, we just thought, wow. in fact, we, Steve and I said it to each other, it sounds like they're talking directly to us. And we had never had a communication with NIST about this before. Now, even related to that, what, what a lot of people don't, recognizes that NIST is the organization in the federal government that supports Baidol. NIST is also the organization that helps to operate the federal lab consortium. So not only were we these partner associations that were operating mostly independently of each other, but we kind of have the same parents. <laughs> so so it really was like a long lost sibling coming back. It really so, sounds like it. Yeah, it was it was kind of it was fascinating. And so we wrote the solicitation and, and I have to say we felt really comfortable right out of the gate that we had what they wanted. If what was in the solicitation was really what they wanted, then we could not imagine anybody better suited than Autumn uh to be awarded the grant. And we were. Uh it was Autumn's first grant we ever wrote and it was successful, which I wish was the case when I wrote grants for my own university. <laughs> there you go. I was not successful until the sixth or seventh grant. But uh but yeah, it's a five year grant. And you know, right away, we're seeing benefits to both organizations. Um, we're really getting to understand the federal labs. We're working on ways to get the federal labs to work better with universities. And at the same time, getting universities to work better with federal labs. We each have our own language and the way that we do things. And, and understanding how those cultures are different is going to allow us to figure out how to put them together a little more. Now, yeah, the, you mentioned that the annual meeting was canceled this year, which was which was obviously tremendously disappointing. One of the biggest disappointments was we were going to have quite a few members of the Federal Lab Consortium's Board of Directors attend the annual meeting and participate in the educational offerings that we have as a first step in this relationship. So we're really excited about it. And, and we see the ability to help the federal government really accelerate the commercialization of research across the board and, and really focusing in on the federal labs. Now that we've been awarded this grant, Autumn represents over $110 billion of federal research. Wow. That's a tremendous amount. Between the university systems and the, yeah. Yeah, and the federal labs. And so this might allow us to have some discussion about a national tech transfer policy because we are actually shepherding this process for two communities that, that have previously worked kind of in parallel for each other. It's not... It's not, uh, we're obviously not trying to have a policy discussion up front, but it's natural that as we get better and understand the federal labs more, that we might start to find more consistency 
and that that might be make everything more efficient for the companies that we're all trying to get these ideas into the hands of. That's what I was thinking. There might be some efficiencies there that sure. can be realized by, you know, each side learning more about the other. And how yep. is that that working from a logistics standpoint? Is there a special committee within Autumn or is it something the board's handling? No, it it operates completely independently of Autumn itself. And so okay. it's it's fully funded. So it is not a it's actually a good distinction. So Autumn is a member-driven association, so our members pay pay fees, uh, pay memberships to join Autumn. The FLC is run completely separately. It has a completely separate P&L. Autumn is effectively operating the grant on behalf of the FLC. I see. And then, and it has, uh, so Autumn has hired the executive director of the FLC who reports into the CEO of Autumn, as well as into the board of directors of the FLC. I see. So it, it, yeah, so it almost sits as like almost, it's a bad way to describe it, but it almost sits as a business unit within Autumn. Right. Yeah. I was just wondering from a structure standpoint, how, how mm-hmm. that was working out. So that that's very helpful. It, it has its own board of directors and own everything. And so our board of directors, we are, Steve is operating the grant on behalf of Autumn for the FLC. And then the board is, commun- Steve communicates with the board, tells them, tells us what the FLC is up to and what we're working on. But, but the Autumn board does not have oversight over the FLC. I see. Okay. That makes sense. Um, turning now to your second point, which was equity, diversity, and inclusion. That's a really very important topic. Can you talk about the formal committee that Autumn created uh, on this topic and some of the issues this committee is going to be focusing on in 2020? Yeah. The, the EDI committee is probably the best example of what Autumn can do. So it was completely member-driven. It was, it was uh, started mostly at a discussion, a discussion that was started uh, years ago, where, where there were separate uh, special in- interest groups. There was a women's inventors SIG, um, and there was an interest in broadening the applicability of technology transfer. Uh, there eventually became a diversity SIG that was focused on not just gender, but on, on all diversity. And this was kind of bubbling up from all sides. And, and there was a discussion about, okay, making, um, making a committee, a bigger committee so that there, so it would have a formal role within Autumn. And when that came up, the board really looked out and said, well, what do we need? And we decided that that committee should be equity, diversity, and inclusion. We should, if we're going to try to tackle any individual aspect, of inclusion or diversity that we should try to do it all at once. So rather than focus just on the gender issue, we're going to focus on all of it. And so what we did was we solicited members from the Women's Inventors SIG, we solicited members from the Diversity SIG, and we solicited members from that we knew that were interested in these particular issues. And we started a small team. And it was uh, it met at the Central Region meeting last year. It was the first time I think it got together in person. And and really, I, my role was as a liaison to the board just to make sure that the committee was getting clear instruction. Eventually, we did a really good job at clear instruction. But if you've ever been in a volunteer organization and I'm a board, sometimes that can be, <laughs> that can be a little challenging. more challenging than you want yeah. it to be. Um, but we wanted to make sure that that effort had visibility into the board and, and vice versa. And so it was, it was, uh, it is chaired by Megan Anstus, who, works at the University of Louisville right now. 
And what we asked everybody in the beginning was, there were five or six or seven people in the beginning, we said, populate the committee um, with the vision of representing as many different populations, as many un- underrepresented groups as we possibly could, um, and, and try to tackle this is- issue holistically. And so they started really by, by looking inward and saying, okay, what is Autumn already doing? What are the kinds of things that we can do to make the association a better association? And the work they did in six months was amazing. So we immediately began captioning all of our presentations. Now, you would think that, hey, we probably were doing that all along, but we weren't. Or you might think, well, what good is captioning? Uh, you know, how many people really need the captioning? Turns out way more people than you think. <laughs> so, so, and that was the matter of switching a button on some of the present uh, on the presentations that allows the captioning to show up in real time. So because, something uh, power- very simple, very, very simple. No, it, it only took having your eyes open to know that you could do it. Right? And then, and, and it kind of went from there. So maybe even more than the disappointment of not meeting the FLC board was the auto manual meeting this year was really embracing equity and diversity and inclusion in so many different ways. And we had all of the speeches were translated and they were not only uh, transcribed, but then they were trans going to be translated into four different languages so that the languages of the membership could actually be represented so they could read the speeches along in their own language. It was going to be on a teleprompter and caption so that you could, there was going to be an app that you could read along with the speakers. So you could, that you, you would be able to capture every word. Uh, UNH innovation sponsored a lactation room because we never had a lactation room at the annual meeting. And that seems like something we should do. And so, so these all seem really simple, but, but the way I described it, I think I described it in the speech, is once you start seeing these things, you can't unsee them. And that's what's really interesting to me about the effort is inclusion is a constant. You have to be thinking about everything you do. How inclusive is it? How equitable is it? Am I capturing, am I serving everybody? Not just the people I know I can serve, but am I serving everybody as equally as you can? And, you know, what we found is that just by making these efforts, people have really appreciated the the good vibes that we've gotten from the membership about these efforts have been tremendous. Um, And so it started with somebody saying, we need to do more with this having a member-driven committee, expanding that committee, having them tell us what we need to do better (laughs) as an association, and then where they're hoping to go in the next year is actually then provide a toolkit so that for universities to say, hey, in your hometown, in your community, here are some things that you think we think you can do to help be more inclusive. Like, how do we capture more underrepresented populations in our inventors, in our disclosures? Are your patent filings representative of your community? You know, simple questions and queries that we can bring back to our home institutions and try to try to affect change where we are. So the first the first goal was Autumn as an association. And then this year is going to be really about how can Autumn help every member institution try to be more inclusive. Wow, that's and then the great. Last, the last piece is that we're we're have some early discussions with bio about how to link up with BIO's equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts. Uh, because BIO looks at Autumn as 
the pipeline for future <laughs> future employees in the biotech community. So whether it's graduate students or faculty or postdocs or our own tech transfer people, a lot of them do wind up in organizations that are represented by bio. So if bio and autumn can connect and get our programs in sync, we can really start to make some big changes. So, and that's super exciting. That's really exciting. And it ought to be very interesting to see what this committee has next year at Autumn National in Seattle. I mean, it sounds like they had so many things going and planned for this year. It it sounds like they're really going kind of gangbusters that it, it'll be really interesting to see what they have to report on uh, yeah, next year. They're amazing and inspiring. That's fantastic. Now, turning to the last topic, you talked about the future of tech transfer. And in your speech, you noted that Back in the day, the objectives of tech transfer really were pretty straightforward. It was fix the perception or the reality, depending on your point of view, that life-saving drugs were sitting on the shelves of universities and that they needed to get into the hands of industry. And you've noticed, noted uh, in your speech that as a profession, universities have done a really great job with this and many therapies now can trace their origin back to academic labs. But you also commented that today things are very, very different can you talk about how the jobs evolved and, and where you think it's going? So a lot of the way that UNH Innovation was structured was what influenced that statement. So and again, I think like you, you said very well, I, the, the beginnings of tech transfer were about getting patents into the hands of the life sciences community. And ironically, right now, the discussion on COVID is, is how do we get more solutions into the hands of industry to help solve this pandemic? And actually, within 24 hours of our recording, Autumn will come out with a statement on what we expect or what we hope that our, our member institutions would be doing to help support the response to the pandemic. So that role continues. But it's more about the holistic view of bringing ideas to the market. So what I say at UNH is that when somebody asks me what my job is, I tell them that we get the ideas that are inside the university, outside the university, by any means necessary. And and I didn't say those were faculty ideas, just ideas. So we have done startups with our staff. We've done startups with students, graduate and undergraduate. We've done startups with our faculty, obviously. But what I think you're seeing is this convergence of the individual university ecosystem kind of coalescing a little bit. And what I think you're going to see more of is the role of the chief innovation officer. So the head of tech transfer will start to morph into something that becomes the chief innovation officer of the university. And that role is going to be to to bring the university's talent to bear on the problems of society in a much more holistic way. So if we're doing startups with our faculty based on IP, we obviously know how to start companies. We know how to structure them. We understand cap tables and venture financing and all the, all the things that universities around the world do. Those skills are just as applicable to undergraduates, undergraduates trying to create their own version of a startup. So why would we create a wall between that knowledge? So as you know, you're going to see more undergraduate entrepreneurship programs be pulled into the sphere of tech transfer. Doesn't mean that the tech transfer office necessarily runs it. It just means there's going to be much more of an open conversation. When I worked at UNC Chapel Hill in the mid-90s and we had undergraduates who wanted to start companies, we basically said, that's not our purview. That's, I mean, it's great and we try to be helpful, but we, we never thought about what we could do to help that company other than maybe connect them to some 
patent attorneys. Now we're asking them, how can we help? Can we look at your business plan? Can we help you? Would you like to enroll in I-Corps? Um, and, and create this a system that really speaks the same language. The same thing with corporate engagement, the same thing with incubators and accelerators and buildings. You're just starting to see everything coalesce around the concept that we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to get the ideas of the university and wherever they originate out into the world to make the world a better place. So in, in many ways, that broadening of the profession, the profession itself is actually being more inclusive. Definitely. Rolling back to, to what we were just talking about. So so those barriers, I think, were, were generally artificial because universities say, oh, here's my here's my incubator, here's my startup, or here's my business plan competition, and here's my tech transfer office where it's just becoming all one thing. And, and if I could just give a, a, a short example from UNH that I think is illustrative of where we're headed. You asked earlier about how the UNH innovation came to pass and what were the different pieces of the puzzle. Uh, we had a faculty here that did not really engage in doing startups that much. So there were maybe five or six startups in the history of UNH before I got here, and we've done another seven or eight or nine since then. So we're not a huge startup community. And part of what we were realizing was we have such a commitment to our students. So we, we're a teaching institution. We do, we do a ton of research. And our faculty are so committed to their students that they, they kind of said, look, startups are great, but I have a commitment to teach. And I thought, all right, well, what if we start talking to the students? <laughs> and, and we made a concerted effort, the founding of the Entrepreneurship Center was part of this, to try to instill the language of innovation and entrepreneurship in with the students at the same level and in the same way that we were with the faculty. So we actually looked around at our community and said, well, who's the biggest customer in the university? And the answer was the students. There are 16,000 of them. There are 800 faculty members. So if we wanted to change something, if we changed it with the 16,000, it probably would help us change with the 800. Yeah. And, and that's actually what we saw. So the more, so we started teaching classes. I taught a class in the business school and in the engineering school. Other people on staff have taught classes in both schools. And as we started to really embrace the student body writ large, they were going to go back in the classroom. And when they were in the classroom, they were going to ask questions about IP and startups and innovation. And they were going to ask that of the faculty that we also want to talk to. And we felt like those things would converge. And it took about three years and, and it finally did. So, so once that happened, that's when we started to see this explosion in licensing, a lot of really great outcomes. Our entrepreneurship center was was named as the um, uh, the top the the they won the award from the GCEC, which is the Global Consortium oh, of wow. Centers. Uh, in their second year of operation, they won the award for the best emerging entrepreneurship center. That's impressive. And it, yeah, and a lot of and that's all Ian and a lot, but a lot of that was was this this ecosystem was starting to self-replicate. And that's what you see in the best communities around the world is the innovation ecosystem is self-perpetuating. Exactly. And, and and so for us, you know, we're in Durham, we're not in Boston. So we had to figure out the environment in our own backyard that would make the system self-replicate. And, and I think we figured it out. So so that's when I was talking about the future of tech transfer. I think that concept, every community is going to apply it differently. But that concept is going to hold true everywhere. If you're not talking 
to your chamber of commerce, if you're not talking to your regional innovation ecosystem, if you're not talking to incubators and accelerators that are running parallel to you, then you're not really fulfilling your mission of being that load-bearing institution. Yep, absolutely. No, that that's really insightful and, and very, very interesting. It, it ought to be interesting to see uh, if some, you know, how this evolves with other universities in different parts of the country and even different parts of the world. Uh, switching gears a little bit, I was reading a couple of your tweets, and in one of them, you mentioned how higher education's been turned around like most things right now by this coronavirus. And But you pointed out that not all this change is bad. And in particular, you had noted that you've been speaking with several people in tech transfer offices over the last few weeks, various colleagues, and they were communicating to you that they've seen a general uptick in engagement with faculty and some possible renewed interest in submitting disclosures. And you mentioned that this was a great time for outreach while everyone was so-called pruning the the bushes until whatever time it is that we return to some semblance of normal operations. But you had an interesting comment. You said in your tweet that you thought this was also a great time for university faculty to pull the trigger on doing startups. Can you tell us a little bit what your thinking and your thought process was behind um, thinking this was a good time for faculty to, to actually pull the trigger on those startups? Sure. So one of the challenges of starting companies out of university research is you need your faculty. You can't just say, thanks for the idea, we're going to run and you sit over here and we'll do all the work for you. Your faculty and your grad students, they're the people that get the work done. They're, they're the credible source, the PI, the person who knows most about the technology. Uh, and having a grad student along with that is, is really the model that we look for as a, a great faculty member at the core of the science, but a, but a hopefully soon to graduate student that's going to bring the ideas out. But the, the piece that everybody struggles with is time. I mean, your best faculty, the ones that are creating the ideas that are going to lead to startup companies, are the busiest ones. And the starting of a company is a lot of work. And it sounds like fun. And you hear lots of people around the country say, start more companies. It's hard work. And I, I did a startup. I actually did two myself. And, and it's hard work. It doesn't get easier with experience. It may have easier access to capital. But it doesn't get easier. And so what I think this moment where we're, uh, I saw somebody the other day call it the great pause. And I, I kind of like, it feels better than a pandemic is that we're all just taking a great pause. But, but in that pause is a time to reflect and collect and think. And so what, what I think we'll see is faculty who, uh, researchers of all kinds, faculty, grad students, who are compiling their data, who are, have stopped running at a dead sprint to do the research because many universities' research enterprises are shut down as we record this. So I think they'll come back up over the next 45 days, hopefully. But it gives you a chance to look at the data, understand what you're doing, maybe understand what you've done, and think about the potential. And then since we're not operating a full lab and the teaching uh, load is different now, it's online predominantly, we think that the you know, there'll be just more time to have those conversations. And so I think this will lead to a burst in interest in startups, because if you can't bring your research back, but you can start a company, that seems like a productive thing to do. Um, what we found is that the most of our researchers, most of the disclosures are available to talk more than before, because they're just not as busy, unfortunately. So there's more time for us. So, you know, so we have more time to dig in, yeah. to understand, to communicate the ideas. 
Uh, I just talked to a colleague of mine who works in industry who said she's never been busier. She's doing more deals than she's ever done before. There are more startup opportunities for for her company to invest in than ever before. Um, so the, the business of business continues to move on. And, and I think in this pause, it's a chance for universities to catch up and to really push our ideas out. And then there's the practical piece of startups take a long time. So while we're all in this great pause and we have a little more time, let's start working on all those documents and the structure and yeah, all those things that just, you know, it just takes time to finish them. Yeah. So, so why not take two months where you're not trying to find the time to do it and do it ahead of schedule? And then when things start to operate and resume, it gets go back there. Yeah, you use this relatively uninterrupted time to uh, kind of put your head down and, and get those things going. Yes. Nobody enjoys trying to structure a cap table. It's much easier to do when you have more free time. <laughs> exactly. And speaking of the great pause and reflecting, in another tweet you recently posted, you were talking about some of your own reflections. And I thought it was really neat and touching because you talked about what you've really enjoyed a great deal over the course of your career, tech transfers, having had the opportunity to learn from people all around the world about how universities not only serve the concurrent missions of being change agents, but also being what you referred to as load-bearing institutions within their own ecosystems. And and you used that phrase a little bit earlier here in this uh, podcast. Can you share with us a little bit more about what you've seen in this regard? So I've had the, the great good fortune over the years to collaborate with people all around the world. And and. Part of the reason that I'm now the chair of Autumn is because it's my way of giving back to an organization that has given me a career. And I've learned a ton from Autumn over the years. And, and so I wanted to try to help the profession of tech transfer any way I could. And so in that process of, of doing the educational component of Autumn, I've been, again, been all over the world. And what I've realized over time was that universities globally basically play the same role. We are the tent poles, or what I've, what I've now started calling, we're the load-bearing institutions of the community. What I mean by that is, we're still here. <laughs> and, and there are lots of discussions of what higher ed is and isn't. And there are institutions that in, in a financial upheaval and, and, a, and a public health upheaval that we're going through now that might not make it back. But the flagship institutions, the land-grant institutions, the state institutions, you know, we've been around for a long time. And Oxford has been around since the 12 or 1300s. Name another, name another profession where the employer has been around for 600 years. <laughs> so universities serve this role of being really consistent forces for good. We educate, we create knowledge, we disseminate knowledge, and we're going to be here. It, the form of what a university looks like in 40 or 50 years might be different than what it looks like now, but we are a constant. And, and in having that role as the consistent player in your ecosystem, you can take on different things. And you're seeing right now across the country with this COVID-19 pandemic, Universities were the first people to respond to solutions. So, and, and our industry partners are responding to these solutions. But you're seeing universities like UNH, we're 3D printing face shields. 
I don't think there's a 3D printer in a university around the country that's not actively trying to make something exactly. to help make personal protective equipment. Yep. You're seeing universities get into clinical trials. They're, they're looking at their drug libraries, trying to come up with therapeutics that they think will hit. They're trying to screen drugs. They're cr- trying to create diagnostics. And I think it's amazing if you think about back in November, if I said the word coronavirus to anybody, no, very few people would know what I'm talking about. And by March 15th or March 20th, Abbott had already had a technology that reduced the time to to a diagnosis to five minutes. And they did that based on some early work that was done, I believe, at Rutgers. So it's not to say it's a Rutgers invention, but the the solutions that were uh, that were first discovered at Rutgers wound up leading to this commercial application that now gets us a diagnosis in five minutes. And and I'm super passionate about that. That's the role of the public sector research of universities and higher education is to respond to the needs of the community. Most of the time, the needs are to educate and create and disseminate knowledge. In this moment, it's to respond to this pandemic. And I've been tremendously proud of, of all institutions around the world and how they've taken on this responsibility, not because anyone was asking them to do it, by the way, but they were running into it saying, we think we can help, we're here. And they started solving the problems instantly. So, you know, looked at another way, you know, public sector research is probably putting, I don't know, hundreds of billions, maybe, maybe even up to a trillion, if you count every, every institution around the world, of intellectual horsepower into solving this problem. And I think as a result, it's going to get solved a lot more quickly. So those are the, those are the things that when you can't move around and you can't go travel and see people, you think about missing that interaction and missing that discussion and learning about how they do it in their community. Uh, but again, the irony is with social media and, and everybody posting what they're doing, you really see that everybody's doing the same thing. We're all just trying to do our little, our little piece to help solve this really big problem. And it's, it, it's incredibly rewarding to see the response. Yeah, the tireless efforts that are coming out of universities you know, researchers who are working 24-7 to try and put things out there. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, and partnering with industry who's yes. going to, who more than, I mean, the industry is going to be the group that's going to put it into the market. That's their, our job is to try to solve problems and industry's job is to try to bring it into market and get it as widely disseminated as it possibly can. That interface has never worked better than right now. It really is. The the cooperation between the two is is just amazing right now. So and, and hopefully people will remember that and continue to support that because there there have been sometimes a lot of um, negative articles written about universities and patenting of their inventions and things like that. And, and hopefully when this pandemic is over, people will continue to appreciate the role that universities play in situations like this and just basic research, because without that basic research, you know, we wouldn't have industry wouldn't have a lot of the solutions that we're, we're looking at now. It, it's true. And it, and it would be great if they actually funded it, not industry, but, but, you know, we jokingly call tech transfer the great unfunded mandate yes. because universities and in every institution are, are the people that are actually paying to create the tech transfer ecosystem. Um, it'd be great if maybe at the end of this, if there's a reflection in society to say, you know, it'd be great is actually if there was some support for this uh, institutionally, where where the country is actually saying this is a great thing that we should support. We support small business. 
we support all sorts of different industries. It'd be great. Uh, maybe again, at the, at the end of this day, if we do a good enough job, maybe, maybe somebody will look up and say, this is an industry we should also look to support and see if we can get even more. Absolutely. So I just want to ask in closing, going back to Autumn again, you've been an active member and a leader in that organization for a number of years. Can you talk about its evolution and growth over time, particularly respect to helping universities, not only here in the U.S., but worldwide, and then finally what it's meant to you? Yeah, we talked about it a little bit throughout the, the time we've been together is, so I've been an Autumn member since 1997, which is quite a while. And if I reflect back on on my early experiences with the association, it was it was the place where I learned how to do the job. And it was the place where I met people who understood what I did. Uh, our profession is much more in the public eye now than it was back in 1997. So it was a really refreshing place to be back then. And we still play that role today. We are still the gold standard for education in the field of technology transfer. And we're, we're all very proud of that. Where I see us evolving to is getting better at communicating the value that we serve in all of these other areas. So whether it's economic development or policy formation or uh, startup creation, we, we're trying to broaden the horizon of what Autumn is and, by, and broaden the definition of technology transfer. And I think we're still in the middle of that change. People still do see us as the patent people or the licensing people, which the, yeah. which we're def- we definitely are. We do all those things. But but now it's you know, we talked about copyrights and, and creating new trademarks and incubators and accelerators and venture funds and seed funds and economic development. And I, I think what you'll see us work on over the next five years is getting better at communicating that holistic vision of who we think we are, who our members are, and doing a really good job of creating more content and creating more education in those areas. Because at the core, Autumn is a place to learn and it's a place to meet people to help you make you do your job better. We have member, we have lots of industry members. We have lots of members from around the world. Everybody's a member. And so we, we try to look at that much more holistically versus thinking, okay, we have to teach the university people how to do what they do. We actually want to want to teach everybody or or really expose everyone to the concepts that we're trying to get to. Because the goal is get the transactions done quicker, get them, get them out the door, do the next one, do more of everything, have more impact, get more ideas out in, into the world. So so globally is really good question. So about 10 years ago, Autumn joined a couple of different associations from around the world. They've, many of them have changed names, but who are now uh, Praxis and ASTP and KCA in Australia, different associations around the world who are Autumn for their own, uh, own regions, and created an organization called ATTP, which is the Alliance of Technology Transfer Professionals. Um, and ATTP is sort of the association of associations. And so we started to then have just a much uh, stronger narrative across the globe about issues of technology transfer, where individual policies may be different country to country or region to region. Globally, the issues are the same. How do we get the ideas out of the lab and into the world to make the world better? So we started to have that discussion on a global scale, which resulted in the creation of the RTTP uh, designation, which stands for Registered Technology Transfer Professional. And so the idea was that people who had received a certain, had a certain amount of experience 
received a certain amount of education could get the designation of a registered technology transfer profession to show that they had a little bit of yep. expertise or to show that they had expertise in their profession. So now there are a few hundred RTTPs out in the world. I am one of them. And we, we do see globally that that's something that we're all interested in is having this recognition of the profession and having a way to signify that, yes, I've not only do I work in this profession, but I, I had by hiring me with an RTTP, you understand the level of professionalism and the level of experience that I have. And so that global conversation to me is really fascinating and exciting. And, and on a personal level, uh, I often tell our staff that every time I go and visit somewhere, I come back with a new idea or a new way of doing things. And so in many ways, UNH Innovation is not only the sum total of all the experiences I've had in industry and startups and universities in the United States, but it's actually the sum total of the additional experiences that I've, I've had in Ireland and China and Japan and Thailand and South Korea and Spain seeing how they solve their own problems and trying to bring back solutions from there. That's awesome. That's really great. Well, thank you so much, Mark, uh, for all your insights and your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? They're welcome to send me an email. My email address is my name. It's mark.sedam at unh.edu. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn and Twitter. And so anybody can feel free to reach me out on, on any of those platforms. And I'm, I'm always ready to start a conversation and help where I can. Yeah. And I would encourage people to read Mark's tweets. They're really very, very insightful. Um, great. Well, thanks Thank so you. much again, Mark. It's been a great opportunity to have the chance to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.